0: Redefined is hosted by me, Zainab Salbi, and brought to you by Find Center, a search engine for your soul. Part library, part temple, Find Center presents a world of wisdom, organized. Check it out today at www.findcenter.com. And please subscribe to Redefined for free on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. What's most important about life? What is the essence of life? Is it what we do? How much we earn? How many social media followers we have? Or is it, do we live our lives in kindness to ourselves and to others? Do we live our lives in love to ourselves and to others? In nearly losing my life, I was confronted with these questions. And it led me to the conversations that make up Redefined. About how we draw our inner maps and the pursuit of meaningful personal change. guest this time is the playwright, author, performer, and activist V, formerly known as Eve Ensler. V has inspired so many women, including myself, for decades. She exudes power and bravery in her intellectual provocations, her activism, her plays, and most definitely in her books. Siding with her iconic play, The Vagina Monologues, to her latest book, The Apology, she is constantly asking us to rethink our social conditioning as it relates to our bodies, to men, to women, to the planet, to our oppressors, and to our lovers. She's always gone about her work with a combination of fierceness and joy. This can be seen throughout all of her efforts, from V-Day and One Billion Rising, global campaigns to end violence against women, girls, and the planet, to the City of Joy, a local effort in the Democratic Republic of Congo that provides safe spaces, health care, and wellness to support female survivors of violence. Often inspirational, Public figures with powerful voices like V are seen for their strength and resilience. And while such strength is real, it is often not devoid of struggles, trauma, fears, and worries. That's where we go in this conversation at redefined. We talk about disease and recovery, about ego and collaboration, about hanging on and letting go, and about harnessing the energy it takes to move forward with love and with purpose. Join me for what I assure you is a very inspiring conversation. I wanted to start with a thank you, really, and I'm getting emotional just saying it. Because I oftentimes, you know, we are in the fight and in the trenches and we look down and we don't take a moment to lift our head from the trenches and just see, you know, who's there. I feel wanna like I haven't said the thank you enough and on so many levels, not only as a, a sister and a comrade in the, in the fight for women's rights and equity and equality, but also honestly, you don't know that about your impact on me personally is the first time I met you where we were guests on the Oprah Winfrey show, and that was September 2000. At that point, I was this young Iraqi immigrant. My mom had just died. Mm. I've already gone through abuse and divorce and displacement and poverty. And it's like, oh, like I've still was like a Mm. deer caught in a, you know, what do you call bright light? And I, I'm on the Oprah Winfrey show, which I also didn't know opera and the magic of that at that moment. I was just like this young immigrant. And I see this woman talking vaginas, you know, on stage. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, the, the, I grew up in a culture that even though I grew up with a mom who was uh, open and was a biologist, so she did talk about sex and sexuality in a, in a healthy and beautiful way, it's still a private space from the culture I come from. So here's like, I am like, Oh, wow. She's talking vagina and all the other acronyms on it that it took me a life just to say it, by the way, all the other words for it that I'm still working on getting there. And so, thank you as also not as a comrade, if you may, not as a compatriot, not as a sister only, but also as a woman. And I mean that most sincerely and emotionally for really taking the private into the public. And taking the taboo into the public space and helping not only the million of women, millions of women that I know, I hope you know that you helped, but me personally into like even going to that space of exploring my healthy relationship with my own body and with my own sexuality, coming from a culture that even though I come from an open, liberal-minded family, the culture was overriding bigger than that. And it's conservative and it's still a work in progress to own that part of me. So, and you have been the champion that held the uh, torch
1: for that. So thank you. Well, thank you. Oh, I remember that, uh, that Oprah show. And I remember thinking, I just remember thinking how brave you were and feisty you were and strong you were. I was just like, wow, who is this woman? But you know, every culture is the same. There isn't any culture that welcomed me and the vaginists when we came to town, <laughs> really. I mean, I can't think of one place that was ready to say the word vagina. Every culture has their own way of not doing it, but every culture is in some way shutting down women's bodies parts, not allowing us to see them, know them, talk about them, feel good about them, you know? So, and it's always funny because every person that always says, well, you know, in my culture, in my culture, we don't talk about it. And I, I, wa- I wish I had like a tape recorder of every single person who said that to me, you know, cause it doesn't matter if you're in the deep South or Indiana, or if you're in India or if you're in, you know, women, women's body parts don't exist essentially, you know, and certainly not 25 years ago, you
0: know? I mean, still, as you know, in a lot of it, but you really have changed the trajectory of that discussion. And, you know, I would say single-handedly, of course, there are other women, but you single-handedly were a force in changing that trajectory of that discussion. And thank you. And, you know, on that, let's just stay on that for a second, is, is courageous, right? I mean, this is not your only courageous act. You have a lot of courageous acts, you know, you have done. And actually, as a matter of fact, your life uh, has been, you know, huge moments of courage. Do you ever think that this is courage? Do you ever go through insecurities and fear? Do you, do you go through that and how do you deal with that?
1: I think when you grow up in a in a family in a situation where you're constantly denigrated and constantly abused and constantly devalued, you have um, very low self esteem. That you know, I always say some people got concrete floors, I got bamboo shoots, and when it rains, all the floor washes away. So I think I've had to really deal with and pursue a way a life. Of building up a strong enough self that can survive who I am, you know what I mean. It's like I always was a person who refused to say it's okay when someone was beating me up, or I was the person in my family who spoke out against my father and then got beaten worse because I was, I was going to go down fighting. That's my nature, but that doesn't mean there's a part of me that wasn't destroyed, annihilated, you know, so that. I'm constantly going back and forth between my real nature and what was done to me, you know, the insecurities and the self-hatred and the self-doubts that grew from being the, the daughter of my particular father. And then me being a person who, you know, has always just railed against injustice and inequality and unfairness. And since I was little, I just couldn't tolerate it, you know, but, you know, I think when you get older, one of the great things about getting older is that you suddenly stop caring so much about what people think about you. And that is just a great gift of aging. And you suddenly go, This is who I am. Like it's not changing. <laughs> it's pretty much like, you know, yeah, like you, you, hopefully you continue to grow and expand and lose more of your ego and disentangle yourself from all those petty things that you thought were once important. But I think you also get to this place where you, you're like, I'm okay with me now. I'm okay with what this is, you know? And I find that so relieving for so many years of, of feeling like such an outlier, feeling like I was always on the outside of everything. And, and now I feel like I've made a home here.
0: Mm. I'm not sure if it's age, right? I don't know. Right. I, uh, what I do know about my own experience is that, you know, you do, I of course have all the doubt and worry and fear and, you know, insecurities. What changed for me was actually came from hours and hours and hours of working on myself. Mm. And at one point I lock into, I, I call it, I arrived to my heart center Mm-hmm. Like there was an experience, you know, mm-hmm. there was just like, I, I I feel like a ship docked into its space mm-hmm. and in that space, it was just so magnificent, you know, mm-hmm. it was just home, but I know not everyone who's uh, uh-uh. aging is arriving there. That, so I'm curious about your own journey of that arrival.
1: Well, like yourself, obviously I spent many years in therapy, in groups, in recovery from incest groups, recovery from sexual abuse groups, recovery, you know, just doing breath work, doing spiritual work, doing endless work. But really, I think there were two main things that changed me. One was getting stage three slash four cancer almost 13 years ago, which was a mind-blowing and heart-shattering experience and very shamanic experience. I feel like I was taken down to the bottom of some... Deep, deep, dark, dark well. And I was forced to confront so much of what I thought I had confronted, to be honest with you, but had not confronted it on the level it needed to be confronted. And I think everything at that point in my life changed. Everything. Like I I came into my body for the first time, even though my body was literally being like organs, nine organs were removed and 70 nodes. I I came through my body and being in my body. I I connected with the earth for the first time since I was young and had been separated. I realized I couldn't live in the city anymore, that I had to live with trees and I had to be surrounded by water and birds and bears and coyotes. And I realized that I couldn't live the way I was living any longer, like compelled by the kind of capitalist, racist, patriarchy proving that I mattered, that I, I I, would add up to something, that I wasn't stupid, that I wasn't a failure, that I wasn't blah, 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 blah. Like all that just, because I realized that was a level of stress that was, I mean, I really think one day we're just going to say stress instead of cancer. Like I think cancer is stress. Uh, stress is cancer. There is no separation. And I think that turning, that moment, um was so profound in my life. I moved here to this amazing place called Lotus Pond Farm and where I live now in the daily embrace of the mother. And I am, you know, I feel like I am at her whim. I am in service to her and I feel like she directs me and I'm very happy to be directed by whatever this this amazing life force is around me. And I think the other thing that really changed me was plant medicines, I think that, you know, verbal therapy and different kinds of therapy were really good. But where I was caught was on a much, much deeper level, a much more cellular, psychic level that was beyond words. And doing plant medicine, I untangled and I released and I let go of and I purged. A lot of what was keeping me on a certain trajectory in terms of relationships, in terms of self-hatred, in terms of, and that's not to say it's all gone, you know, but what what it feels, what feels different today is where before I feel like my ichinen that's what they call in buddhism that i used to practice like my life force was always uh, susceptible to the currents of circumstance and change where like like if something came towards me it would wash me away and now i feel like my ichinen is much more solid and much more connected to the mother to her so that it doesn't get as rocked as easily you know that's not to say i'm impervious to cruelty or unkindness or rejection of course not but i'm not at the whim of it you know i'm not at the whim of it and and so that's given me a peace that i never had before just a way of being in rightness with myself and and in, in my heart and i and i also feel like i for many years of my life forced myself almost to stay in relationships where i was going to make them work I was gonna. I was gonna work my. I was gonna work overtime to to make these. You know, change people and get people to see. And I don't feel like I need or want to do that anymore. That has changed. Like I will love people, but I know today it's not my job to change people. It's not my job to fix people or save people or, you know, it's my job to love people. And that's a very different action, you know. It's beautiful
0: beautiful. It seems that what I learned, what I'm hearing is that the illness and the cancer have taught you to in, to surrender in a way to earth. Mm-hmm. Is that, does that yeah, resonate? Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And be okay in my own skin, to live in my own body. Like I really believe the cancer was what brought me back into my body. And it feels very good to be in here, you know, and I'm so grateful to my body. I mean, it's ludicrous that I'm alive, you know, after that kind of cancer and, and you know, to feel well, to feel healthy all these years later, you know, just feels like I'm an, an just unbelievable gift.
0: The reason I... Did, I'm doing this these conversations in this in this podcast is because I don't know if I I think I alluded to it in one of our conversations is because I almost died two years ago and and thought I was having my last breath at the ICU and it sort of took me to the same route that it's it's interesting you know that I had to move out of the city that I needed to be in touch with nature you know it's like wow you know as a child like you know that I you know, that all the things that mattered for me no longer mattered. And that connection with nature to, with myself, with, with my friends and family, you know, and, and honestly with the divine became what's, you know, profound experiences that filled me, you know, and, you know, the others are all frivolous, but I worry, I see myself slipping between now and then into the material. You know, I, Mm -hmm. I go to the city and I like, I have these glimpses of the pressure around Mm -hmm. and people are like, you know, buy this and get this. And for moments I see myself slipping and I have to like remind myself, no, 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 no. Go back. Do you ever slip? And what
1: do you do when you slip? Well, I, I think, we're living in this very, very powerful capitalist culture that is so seductive and so ongoing and it never ceases. It's always telling you, you could be better if you were this. I mean, all these social media systems are set up to make people feel like a better life is happening someplace else. And if you were only good enough, smart enough, hip enough, cool enough, beautiful enough, skinny enough, blah, 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 you would be having that life. So I don't think any of us are impervious or can ever be completely impervious to that. But I think what I'm, what I'm, I think by building this self, right, that self that is. Not not standing on the ground of capitalist evolution, but is instead burrowed into the earth and getting deeper all the time in that burrowing process. I think what's happening for me like like i'll give you an example I'm right in the middle of a new show right now and we're in rehearsals, and it's it's I just love nothing more than the rehearsal process it's the most glorious magnificent time of creation, collaboration, community, inspiration. And it's it's just, I, I really, if I could live there forever and just never put the show up in front of an audience, I'd be really happy, because it's just so amazing to be creating. But there's also this voice that's always there, which is, oh, how will people react? How will the critics react? How will this react? And where before, that would have wound me really tight, right now i feel like yes that's that's there but what is more there is my own intention my own desire for what i want this piece to do and the impact i want this piece to have in the world and how joyful i feel that all these actors that all these directors musicians songwriters Stage managers, producers have all, you know, there were like 80 people in the room two days ago. All of us just focused on making this the best, most magical, most effective piece of art we can possibly make. And when I'm there, I'm in heaven. When I step out and I start worrying about the gatekeepers of the culture and who's going to sanction me, it's always a disaster because it's it's always been done in my business. And what I've learned is when when the Vagina Molos came out, half the people crucified it, half the people loved it. And what I know now is it didn't matter. The light the, the play had its own life. People made its own life. People took it where they needed to take it. And and I trust people. I trust that people will come and feel and know what the show is. And part of my work is to stay connected to that, to stay connected to that and not, and not get into what is this going to be in terms of the marketplace? And what will this be in terms of making money? And because all that is just like, not why I'm doing this, you know, it's just not. And that's what everybody comes and puts on it, as opposed to allowing themselves often to be vulnerable to what the work is actually calling up in them. You know,
0: can you tell us the play, what the play about is too early to share?
1: Well, I can just say that it's a musical that I've written with Justin Tranter and Caroline Pannell, both who are amazing pop songwriters, and Adina Menzel has been part of our collaboration, and a wonderful man named Aaron Cantata. And Diane Paulus is directing it at A R T, and we start it starts December fifth. It's called Wild, and it's really a musical about really a small farming town that's having a really hard time surviving, and what happens when these outside forces come to offer it a solution that could destroy the land but could also feed the people and the teenagers of the town basically are so upset that they develop supernatural powers and it's it's a it's a fable and i love fables because i think they just give us a very good way of talking about where we are now without being right on the head and I think just having been in rehearsal this last week it's 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 a piece about community and it's a piece about how we really can't fight to save the earth fight to save if we don't have so much love in our life that we want to be alive like they're all connected do you know what I mean like you're not going to fight for life unless you enjoy your life you know so how do we create communities where people are so loved and so appreciated and so valued that they want to fight for each other and the planet and the earth, you know? And I think the music is so beautiful. And I, I wrote lyrics and I wrote the book and I've never done this before. And it just feels like, um, you know, I really stepped out of my comfort zone to create something new. And, you know, I'm learning as I go, but I'm having, I'm just having the time of my life. I'm, I'm in bliss. It's so much fun, you know?
0: you know, the one common theme I've had with conversations across the different guests I've had was when people are doing the thing they love, mm-hmm. they are in bliss, Yeah, like that's bliss. And when they are in that bliss, they don't care if it succeeds or fails. They don't put labels on it. That's like, and they thrive usually when someone is doing is in that bliss, you know, yep.
1: It's it's like, don't worry about outcomes. Don't worry about the story of the marketplace. Follow what's what's calling you. Follow the voices, the stories that you need to tell. Trust that because those are the most interesting stories, not the ones that try to like double guess or figure out what will sell or what will make it. That that to me is never interesting. What's interesting is what is a story that is passionately driving through somebody that they have to tell because if they don't tell that story, they will not survive. If they have to tell that story, you know, or we won't survive, you know.
0: Have you ever done that and it failed? And how did that feel?
1: Well, failure is an interesting thing, isn't it? I have done plays before where I don't feel like the play got realized, either due to actors being wrong or direction not being right or the people not getting the style. But I've never felt like that sense of failure because I feel like every project has, first of all, I've just loved the process and I love being in it. And every project has taught me something, even if it didn't, you know, even if it wasn't the vagina monologues, it taught me, oh, you could do this better or you could learn this or that doesn't work. But if you do this, this will work. So, You know, I think I think one of the sad things about this country and many countries, but particularly this country, is that we don't value artists. We don't understand that art is in a a time when religion has so deeply failed people and is so compromised and corrupt in so many ways. The one thing we have is art. The one thing we have, like to raise our consciousness and and get under binaries and under dualities and and wrestle with characters who are different than ourselves and put out ideas that are hard. We have art and 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 it moves us and it can has the capacity to open our hearts and break our hearts and has the capacity for us to feel for people we might not feel for. And I think it's just sad to me that we don't have a. a country that supports artists so that, for example, you have a career as an artist. You write some really amazing plays and you write experimental plays and you write plays that you want to try something out that they may not be commercial plays, but they may reach people on a different kind of level. And we don't have any kind of financial or even even um, cultural support. Our our culture is really about got you. It's like okay, well, done with that playwright. Like you know, I, I think about Tennessee Williams and how he was so loved and loved, and then he was just destroyed by the critics and attacked by the critics, and and it was like everything before that was erased until after he had died, you know. And and I think rather than going okay, well, like they're trying this and we're trying this, why is it, you know, about devastating people and annihilating people as opposed to understanding that art takes a long, long time. I've been working already three years on this musical, and I'm sure I'll be working another two or three years before it gets where it's going. And so for people to come and just crash something or crush something without the regard or respect for that process, I find very upsetting and very capitalist, you know, as opposed to seeing our artists as, as storytellers and and people who are bringing ideas and richness and possibility and hope and and grief and, and expressions of grief into the culture. And I would love to see us, like, how do you t- tell young people, you know, come on, come out with your voice and come out and try when everything about the culture is about smashing you and judging you and annihilating you as opposed to lifting up our artists and and loving them. Mm-hmm.
0: One of my seven rules for a happy day I have after my illness was uh, one of them is to be in the art every day, like do something in the art, whether I retaught myself the piano or do some paint. It doesn't matter, but do something in the art for your soul, basically for my soul. Uh, I've been dying to ask you really the question that I really been waiting. Um, I wanted to start with that because it's been haunting me. Um, which is, I read your last uh, piece of work, which the apology, um, a book that you wrote, tapping into your father's voice, basically in your father's voice, and it was, to say the least, a very powerful book. And I've like read and heard you speak about it as much as I could, right? And I heard you saying, "Why?" why you needed to write that book. And ultimately, as I understand it, is because you needed to liberate yourself from the burden and the pain of the abuse that he had imposed on you as a child. The question I have is, how did you get there? I mean, because that's the magnificence and the unique work that I don't know any who has done that. There's a lot of work, there's a lot of writing about why we need to release ourselves from the pain. Perhaps there's less work on the necessity for reconciliation and apolo- and proper and heartfelt apology. But there is none that I know of that taps into what you have done is get into your abusers voice and mind and heart and write an apology which feels sincere and respectful of the integrity of that voice, the voice of the abuser. So how did you get there? How did you do it?
1: You know, I think there's so many things that contributed to this journey there. But what comes to mind when you ask that question is I had the honor and privilege of working at Bedford Hills Correctional Facility for eight years. And I worked with a group of inmates, women, who were there for violent crimes. Most of them were there for murder. And we did a writing group for eight years, and much of the writing group, most of it, was me giving them prompts and writing exercises which forced them or encouraged them or allowed them to go into their crimes and to look at why they had committed those crimes, what they had actually done, who were they that they would do that, what was the impact of what they had done to really feel it, to really know it. And I spent eight years with the most amazing group of women, brave, deeply sensitive, and all of them had done a terrible thing or a few terrible things in their lifetime. And what I gradually came to know is that nobody is one thing. Nobody is the, their, just their mistake. Nobody is just their one horrible deed. People are many things. That is not to say that they're not responsible or culpable or that what they have done is not horrible, because of course it is. But what I saw was women who had had life move towards them, the wheel of life move over them, over them, over them, over them for so many years without feeling like they had any choice in anything. And then one day there was just boom, this action that grew out of that. And and in most cases, some cases, you know, some, some women had different stories, but that was the majority of it. Like whether it was growing up poor and in violent situations or growing up in racist situations and being poor or growing up, like there was a mechanism that was. So what I learned is that. OK, I'll, I'll tell you this story, and I think this is where it really got me. I was doing this group at the very beginning where I would sit with women and I would have them go around the circle and I would say, okay, talk about from one to five. What were the big incidents? And they'd go around the circle. And there was one woman in the group who just gave me the creeps. I just didn't like her. Her vibe, her look, everything about her scared me to death. And I just hoped she wouldn't talk. And the second session, she sat down next to me and I was like, oh God, she's sitting next to me. I can't handle this. So we went around the circle and we got to her. And she told her story and her story was that her mother and her father were essentially pimps and um, they were, they basically were bringing in children and abusing them and having sexual, having sex with them and selling them out to neighbors And when she was very, very young, she was basically treated like a dildo and was just given to people to have sex with and was chained to beds and horrible things happened to her. And then her mother died when she was 12 and her father or stepfather, I guess it was her stepfather, married her and then forced him to be his accomplice, where she then began to bring children in for him. And then one day one of the children died and she ended up in prison. And she said when she came to prison, she had no idea why she was there because there had never been any relative point to her upbringing. Like nobody ever, ever told her that what was happening to her wasn't normal, that it was bad, that it was wrong. She didn't have any other experience but that experience. So she had no idea what she had done wrong, except that someone had died and she knew that was bad. But, you know, she didn't mean for that person to die. And she said it took her five years in prison to begin to understand what the world was and how horrible it was. And then she began to cut herself and try to kill herself because she realized, and she's actually said at the end of her talk, please never let me out of prison because I don't trust who I am. I sat there, Zainab, and I literally, my life changed. My life changed. I just said, you don't know anyone you don't know anyone. You don't know what they've been through. You don't know what led them to do what they do. You don't know what experience like broke their heart or decimated their character or changed them. You don't know anything. So you just need to shut up and listen. And you need to hear and and ask and try to understand what makes people. And I think that was really the beginning of me, not at that point, by no means. It took me years to want to, to be able to write this book about my father because I had so much rage and I had so much um, justified anger and, 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 you know, I was righteous and, and that all, all that did was keep me attached to him and all that did was keep me his victim. And all that did was keep me in this really S dance with him. That was just completely controlling my life. And when I, when I saw like the, you know, as you and I know, we've been in this movement to end violence against women a long time, and we see the next iterations. And when Me Too happened as the next iteration, I, I started seeing all these men being called out, and none of them were apologizing. None of them were taking responsibility for what they had done. And so I started to think, how many years did I wait while my father was alive for that apology? And then 31 years into his death, I'm still waiting for my father to apologize. And I finally just said, well, you know what? What if I wrote it? What if I wrote what I needed to hear? What if I allowed myself to climb inside my father, who I know better than anybody in the world, because we know our perpetrators better than anyone in the world, because we have to, (laughs) right? Particularly if it's ongoing perpetration. And I just see if I could write my, his apology and right into, and it was the most excruciating experience I've ever had because to know somebody, to really let yourself know somebody who's hurt you feels almost unbearable. Do you know what I mean? Because there's part of you that as you're seeing their pain, you are at, in some level having compassion for them, which you don't want to be having because they've hurt you. So you're in that struggle And I will say that, I mean, art is so mystical. Like the minute I started to write this, my father showed up. He was here. He was absolutely present from another world through the entire writing of of that book. And he would literally wake me up at four in the morning and go say, go to your office. I have a story to tell you. And I would get up and I'd go to the office and I'd write this thing. And I'd be like, what started to happen was that I began to understand who my father was and what had happened to him and why he had become and how he had become a person who was capable of doing what he had done to me. And although it did not justify it, although it did not, it it actually made me understand it. And understanding is liberation. Understanding is liberation. It is just, oh, it wasn't about me. It wasn't me being a horrible, awful person. It wasn't that I was damaged. My father was damaged. This is this was the outcome of his damage. And by being able to see that for the first time in my life, I felt free of this horrible burden I had carried around of both feeling like something was intrinsically bad about me and wrong about me and that's why he had to do what he did, but also that, you know what? I didn't get turned into what my father got turned into. Like he had gone through this and this and this and had become that. And I went a different route with what he had done to me. I said, I'm never going to do this to anybody else. I'm going to go and have a life where I change me. I didn't have children because I didn't trust who I was. I, I just didn't. I eventually adopted a son who I felt by that point in my life, I could help, you know, and I could love. And and he taught me how to love, to be honest. But it's like that journey with, with, with the book taught me two things. Everybody in this culture or so much about this culture is avoid the pain, avoid the pain, avoid the pain. The pain is the liberation. Walking through the pain is the doorway. You can't, you can't sit on the side of it. You can't negotiate with it. You have to actually walk into it. You have to walk through it. You have to actually go to the place you don't want to go. And that will be where you get free. And the second thing is, is that like, there is a human mandala and we are all somehow aspects of ourselves, the best and the worst are part of that mandala. And, All of us have a shadow. All of us have the potential to do terrible things. All of us have the potential. You know, I heard, I heard Anthony Hopkins the other day. Somebody asked him if he regretted anything in his life, and he said, "Actually, no." He said, "I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've done terrible things. I know that I have the capacity to do terrible things, but I also know I've worked really hard to do good things." and I'm on this trajectory of evolution as a human being. And so I'm doing the best that I can. And I think what I realized about my father is my father grew up in a time where people didn't have the consciousness. We did. Patriarchal reality was just a given. He had all the power, which was a very unfortunate thing because he wasn't capable of holding that much power without it becoming psychotic and, and cruel and violent. I have to tell you that at the end of the book, um, there's a line, which is, oh man, be gone. It's the last line of the book. And I don't know who said it, my father or I, I really don't know who wrote that line. But there was this feeling, the minute I wrote it down, where, where like Tinkerbell at the end of Peter Pan, my father just went, Shh, and he he literally disappeared into the ethers and he's never been back. And I think I do believe that My father is in a better place. I actually know my father's in a better place. I think we don't realize how much the dead need us, that they are around us all the time. And a lot of times they're stuck because they haven't worked out stuff in this lifetime. And they're just trying to get out of certain zones and realms that they're stuck in. And I think this process we went through, my father and I freed him. And I do believe he's in another zone, but it definitely freed me. And- I decided soon after that to change my name because I have no more rancor towards my father. I have no more anger towards him. I have nothing. There's nothing. Do you have love towards him? Can you have love towards him? I I have what I would call acceptance. Do you know what I mean? And I love certain things that my father gave me. My father was very much about honesty. My father had a very beautiful relationship to money. He didn't think you should have more than you needed. My he gave me values that I really and there were things about my father that I really appreciate. You know that he brought us up in a unitarian church so we learned about all religions and we'd always be open minded. There were things he gave me that I'm really grateful for today. So in that sense yes there is love. I no longer wanted to be in his story. It was over and I knew I didn't want his name and I didn't want the name he gave me. I wanted to name myself and I wanted the next part of this existence here on earth to be my story and the story I was creating. So I released that name and I'm so happy to be V. As I say, I'm down to a letter, soon I'll be nothing. And um, it feels really good.
0: I mean, it's amazing what you just shared. I mean, and it's, it's, it's a journey of a woman who has arrived to her heart center, to her, the foundation of who you are, to your soul, you know, when body, mind, and soul meet in ourselves. And it seems that it's a journey of arrival. You know, you talked about one time, um, at one point, um, plant medicine helps you. And it's something, it has helped me a, a great extent. And there's was in one experience, I put all my stories in a canoe. Uh, all of it and, and the pain and the, and the abuse and all of that. And I just pushed it out, you know, and I completely agree. We have to go through the pain. We have to go through the pain. There is no numbing it. There is no psychic healing. There is no energetic healing for me. People's like, but I've gone to this healer and this is like, no, it, they can't help you. You have to go through the pain itself. Look at it in the eyes, and you shall, you shall go the other way. Totally.
1: And I'm very excited just to say that um, in this this spring, they're going. We're going to do a, a play version of the apology. Wow, yeah, in New York, with two men playing a younger and older version of my father, so I'm really, really excited. I think women will pay a lot of money to come here. men apologize.
0: <laughs> wow. See that we've
1: never heard it, right?
0: <laughs> well, it could be a modeling also for the men who do need to apologize and mm-hmm. and are. You know, I don't know if they don't know or they're afraid or lawyers are advising them not to do or they can't acknowledge the abuse or 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 but it could be, and until that happens, we cannot reconcile, no. you know. We can't. Uh, we can't. Yeah, yeah, until that the apology is very much needed. And so is the reconciliation, but one has to come before the other. You talk about love, and I, you know, you talk about your son teaching you love, your adopted son teaching you love. And I have two questions on that is, is how has your relationship with men changed over time? Your last TED talk, you said you spent a lifetime calling men out and now you're calling men in.
1: You know, there's been so many amazing steps on this journey. Um, I mean, I think obviously my son and he was 15 when I adopted him and I was 23. And, you know, um, I mean, I had no idea how to love. I had no idea how to function, but I had to because he was a he was a mess. And I had to figure out how to stand up and, and make him feel safe and make him feel seen and make him feel valued and, and be there for him. And that was just an amazing gift because it forced me to get my shit together and, and forced me to figure out how to do for him what I wished others had done for me. So that was a big part of it. And I think there's been wonderful things along the way, like meeting Dr. Mugwege was in, in Congo was a huge piece of my story because when I met him many years ago now and I interviewed him in New York at NYU, I just was absolutely taken by what an extraordinary human being he was. And then he invited me to come to Congo to help him. And meeting him and seeing this man who was devoted to ending sexual violence it was like, what? There's a man like this? There's there's the possibility of, of this creature in the world? And getting close to him and working with him was just an amazing thing. And then I think just seeing how many men over these years have been part of our movement, have been part of supporting us, have been part of putting on actions and doing things. And just to say, like, it, it's just interesting. I was sitting in rehearsal the other day, and I realized, How much of this new musical is really about what patriarchy has done to boys and men and how if we don't heal that, we will never, ever heal the planet like they are one and the same. Our our desecration of the earth is no different than the desecration of women's bodies and how we feel about life force, right? And how men feel about the feminine life force is very much connected to patriarchy and dominance and, and occupation and all of those things that men are trained to be. So I feel, I feel, look, there's always a part of me that doesn't understand how men don't just rise up and say, we will not tolerate a world where women are raped and beaten and incested and cut and burned and violent. I just still don't understand it. Uh, like, even though I understand it intellectually, I don't understand it in my heart. Like, where are you guys? Where are you? You know, like why aren't you with us? Why, why isn't ending violence against women and girls your issue? We're not doing it. We were gen- we generously took that on. You know, there is still a part that doesn't understand how men do not understand that patriarchy is going to destroy us if we do not shift it. Like, and and because I've never had that kind of power. I don't understand an attachment to that kind of power, right? Because women and black people, people of color, LGBTQ, you know, trans trans people, none of us have known that kind of power, right? Transgender people have never known that kind of power. So it's like, I don't understand why men primarily, because men and white men still primarily have this power, don't see and don't have the wisdom to understand what this power and, is doing to everything, right? Like whether it's inequality of wealth, whether it's, I was just thinking about Afghanistan today and the fact that 23 million people may starve, right? Like, what are we talking about? There are people who have trillions of dollars on this planet right now who could literally find a way to get relief to all those Afghan people. And it would not really touch into their wealth, right? So I don't understand this. (laughs) I still, there's still part of me that has a very, Maybe I call it naive or or I'm just in disbelief constantly.
0: And I want to just, before we go in further, Dr. Mikwege is from the Democratic Republic of Congo in Eastern Congo, and he is a gynecologist uh, who treats women who have been literally ruptured their body is ruptured from mass rape and he has this clinic in eastern congo that he heals them and that's what v was uh, referring to and 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 he i believe he won the nobel peace he did, uh, two prize years as ago. well yes yeah yeah and one of the kindest men indeed and i remember connect talking about men i remember you wrote a, a piece at uh, half post i think that you were f- upset with the good man the bad man, the one who's raping is one thing, but it's the good man. Where are the good men and why are they not uh, speaking up? And uh, it's what you're just talking about. Like, where are they? Why are you not speaking up? And why do you think?
1: I think Tony Porter talks about it a lot when he talks about the man box, that I think men have been so cultured to be with each other in the story of patriarchy in that man box, that they are very afraid to speak out against each other, to stand up, to break that code, to break that story, to to end that narrative. And I think in the same way that, Feminists, you know, in the early days stood up to break that story. There have to be more and more men who come forward. And I think it is happening. I'm seeing it in our movements. I'm seeing it in One Billion Rising. I'm seeing it. There are more and more men coming, and younger men, really of this young generation, who are just like, no, no, we we we're not going to behave like that. We don't accept this as the way of the world. I think that's gotta happen at a much more accelerated pace if we're going to get there in time before climate disaster just throws us off, you know, you it's, know, it's
0: all intertwined. It's all intertwined. I mean, Tony Porter is from a call to Man, an organization that teaches men about masculinity. And, you know, I honestly, as I look at their, the more I look into their work, I feel like there should be, a class, you know, when we are growing up, when I was growing up, there's home economics for girls. I think there should be healthy masculinity for all boys, oh, you know, as, as part of the curriculum for all and schools, every basically. Every school,
1: every school, absolutely. They're doing such wonderful work at a call to men. And, you know, it's step by step, but we should we should scale this up. This should be happening at a mass level everywhere and immediately. And part of it is, is there's so much resistance from the right because there's so so much of the right is hinged on patriarchy, right? Hinged on, um, you know, you know. Look at look at who got into the Supreme Court. Look at, like, it's it's really about having domination over women's bodies, domination over women's rights to work. Men, you know, the old story of patriarchy is embattled right now with the new story, and you know, it's it's a question. Sometimes I think it's a question of who's going to push forward like which part of the story is going to push forward you
0: know, well, our existence is at stake in it I mean, is. humanity,
1: like <laughs> yes. literally right literally. now, right? I mean, yeah. you know,
0: so, I mean, I hope and I believe, you know, you, you can't be a humanitarian and an activist if you don't believe, I think, you know, I believe in the, in the possibilities of change and in hope and in belief. And I really believe that this century has to become the feminine century with feminine values, you know, which is beyond equality. It's just how to lead, how to interact how to exchange in a, with feminine values between each other as humans between nations and definitely between humans and animals and earth you know itself and and so it has to, that that side has to win you know it's just we are in a in the middle of the battlefield as as you one may say you know i have you know few last question which is you gave a magnificent speech uh, about eve Literally, Eve in heaven, and you rewrote the story of Eve, the narrative of Eve. It's a wow, right? (laughs) It's brilliant, which is like she is actually, she did not do the other, you know, she did not pick up the wrong apple. She was, (laughs) it's brilliant. I highly recommend it for everyone to hear it. And it, you know, it takes me to the question, not about Eve, but about God and the divine, you know. And I say it because. I'm curious always about that relationship. And if you are taken, if you've, with, with all, there's a healer part of you, you know, and, and the spiritual seeker part of you that I see and I'm witnessing here, you know, from, yes, the therapy, but all the other healing methodologies that you've gone through it. And I'm curious, what did that teach you or what did that expose to you about the divine, whether it is God or whether it's goddess so, how do you
1: see that relationship to be? Are you talking about the Eve piece particularly? No, I'm talking about your
0: relationship. Yeah. I mean, but it could be. The Eve piece is brilliant because you changed the narrative, you know. But it's really about your relationship and how do you see the definition or your relationship with God or however that is.
1: I think that moving here to this land to be immersed with these locust trees and weeping willows and you know, snapping turtles and koi fish. and I feel so connected to something so much bigger, so much more magnificent, so much more radiant. And I get to be my small part of this. and and I I remember once when I was young, I had this, I went to sleep and I had this hallucination, and I saw my body. Being pulled out of my head and going up and 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 up until the universe, until it just disappeared. And I said to this genius um, African American woman artist who was just this brilliant woman, What was that? And she went, Oh, you found your place. And I was like, What a beautiful way of putting it. Like, and I think it's taken me many, many, many years to get to the place where what i want what my spiritual quest is is to disappear into that so that i will have my place right to to disappear into that to be able to do everything i do without worrying about you know leaving a mark like to to just be able to be know my place be humble in that knowing, be generous in that knowing, not worry if people credit me or see my work or know it's me or like, but just to be part of this, part of this. You know, I was thinking, thinking like it in just in working on a musical because it's so collaborative, much more than a play, like, because you're working with music and you're working with so many pieces that you have to constantly in the process be willing to go, give that up. Great idea, but not working in terms of A, B, C, and D. How do you make how do you work in terms of A, B, C, and D? It's not about you anymore. It's about you in service to this creation, which involves a lot of other beings. And sometimes I can feel that part of me going, but I'm the writer, but I I wrote this, and this is my piece of this, and you have to respect this. And then I go, Whoa, okay, there's your ego because you need that ego. You can't you can't give up the ship entirely you've got to hold your part of the story because if you don't hold your part of the story the script becomes a disaster at the same time you have to learn how to hold your part of the story and know when to surrender know when it needs to open to others and to me that's the work we're doing here on the planet like knowing like what is what is good leadership good leadership to me is being able to provide or lift up or inspire and know that we are all making this happen, facilitating a process where everybody feels important, every voice is heard, everybody feels like their contribution is valued, and that you're helping facilitate that process or be part of that process. And to me, you know, the closest I feel towards whatever that thing is when I I'm no longer here in the sense of like me, 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 meanness, but I'm here in the we-ness, in the one pulse of this, you know, and I feel that gorgeous sense of wow, we're in this, we're all in this. We're just like, let's go.
0: That was me. You can learn more about all of her extraordinary work at www.vday.org. For transcripts and other resources from this episode, please go to www.findcenter.com redefined. You can follow V on Instagram at Eve Ensler. You can follow Find Center on Instagram at find center. And you can follow me at Zainab Salbi please email me questions about this podcast and your own transformative moments at redefined at findcenter.com thank you so much for listening we'll be back next week for another conversation about life's turning points and lessons learned our guest will be country music icon Roseanne cash redefined is produced by me Zainab selby Along with Rob Carso, Casey Kahn, and Howie Kahn at Freetime Media. Our music is by John Palmer. Special thanks to Tony Montanieri, Neil Goldman, Carolyn Pincus, and Shara Johnston. Looking forward to seeing you next time.